Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is a panel discussion bringing together writers from Sweatshop Literacy Movement featuring Amani Hayder, Shirley Lay, and Tyree Barnett. Now, this is part two of the conversation, so make sure you go back, check out part one. It's going to give you some background on the incredible new sweatshop collection, Racism, and some of the initial ideas that we were discussing about what racism is and how it exists in our world beyond simple acts. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture. My name's Andrew Popel. Each week, I broadcast a show called Final Draft. It's from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. And every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling, help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. Now, I always want to acknowledge that these are the traditional owners of those lands. I want to pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Acknowledge that this is stolen land. The treaty has never been made in Australia. Now, Sweatshop are a literacy movement out of Western Sydney. They are working to empower culturally and linguistically diverse communities through writing. You have met them here on the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast before. They have an impressive library of works. The latest is called Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and Bigotry. The collection asks the question, is Australia a racist country? And explores well-understood as well as more covert iterations of racist behaviour. And also the institutions that prop up dominant culture, ways of thinking and being. Tyree, Amani and Shirley have joined me for this incredible conversation and it's taking in so many important areas. This is part two where our discussion is going to explore public and personal responses to racism. We're going to be looking at the processes of unlearning unlearning things that, you know, are part of just the society around us that perhaps we take for granted. And we also discuss how to approach instances of racism in everyday life. So join me as we discover Sweatshop's racism, stories on fear, hate and bigotry. We've looked at the way the conversation can move from very awkward personal spaces to very public conversations where there is a there is an event that spurs a, a broader discussion. So often when there is an event, and if we if we think about the Atlanta spa um, shootings that you've mentioned there, Shirley, the, the dominant, um, well, especially in America, it seems, um, the dominant po- political response is now is not the time to have this conversation. Um, like somehow talking about the reasons why this happened would, would, would cheapen the moment. I wanted to go, though, to this idea of the public perception and the way the public response interacts with how we perceive racism. Um, I want to I bring it maybe back a little bit more local to where we are right now. I'm not that big into sport, but I couldn't help but notice that another incidence of racism in the AFL has hit the headlines this week. And I don't mean to single out that code, although there is plenty to single out in that code. Sporting codes across our country have troubling histories of seeming, seemingly systemic racism. But I wondered how you all felt when the issue of racism hits the headlines in this way. Um, because on the one hand, it seems like it it can be a case of, well, we're, we're shedding light into the dark places. We are actually looking at institutions and how they fostered this. But then I wondered, you know, we, we, we again, we have an individual who can be called a racist and can be made to to publicly address their racism and... From the you know the talking heads, the commentary. I'm I'm literally being one of those talking heads right now. We have a 
we have a, a situation where we're we're saying it's it's that person, that racist doing racist things. Like, where do you, where, how do you feel when racism becomes a public discussion like this? Look, I I think it's really interesting when incidents of racism are discussed in um, Australia. And I think that you can see clear divides um, in the perspectives that respond to it. Um, I would say that um, there's almost a playbook in the reactions that unfold when a racist incident um, comes to light in the media. Um, Immediately you'll see, I think, um, white conservatives kind of, you know, uh, put the blame on the um, person of colour saying, oh, you know, just get over it. Uh, you're taking yourself too seriously. Um, and uh, to be Australian is to, you know, take a joke and um, to just move forward. And then um, you kind of hear now from different um uh, other kind of more progressive outlets, um, I, I think you still see a hesitancy even among more progressive outlets to blatantly label something as racist. I think we, we still see very euphemistic terms like racially fueled, racially motivated or racially, it was a racially sensitive um, event. And I think until we... Uh, understand the terms and the terminology well, then we can start to have an honest conversation about that. And what I've learned with my um, involvement with Sweatshop is that it's really important to foster um, more critical thinking, not just among uh, marginalised communities, but I think Australia Australians as a whole need to engage in more critical thinking when it comes to viewing racist incidents and when it comes to unpacking the reporting of racist incidents in the media. Um, I think we need to understand how to unpack those words and read between the lines um, and to call out the bias in the way that these racist incidents are um, reported and covered. Amani, Tari. I think also... um... I think part of the issue as well is, and it, I'm, a, I'm of two minds, is that one, whenever these incidents happen, I don't often hear from the one who is victimized, from the minority who is called the name or who is singled out or who is made to feel othered. At the same time, though, it's not on them to explain racism. It's not on the, the victimized to try to explain to the dominant culture when things like Google exist. Uh, why this was a particularly insensitive thing to do or an insensitive situation. And so, but at the same time, I do think that an offer should be made of, hey, this this happened to you, this this thing that, granted, we dominant culture don't really fully understand why it was racist, but if you're comfortable now or if you're comfortable later on, can you explain to us or can you educate us on why you, you feel this way? And can we give you, um, whatever platform you're comfortable with to explain it, bring you whatever advocates, you know, um, whatever resources you need to help articulate why this is an issue. And then from there to Amani's point, then let's have an honest conversation of when other incidents like this have happened. Oftentimes when one person, person speaks up, other people start to speak up and say, actually that happened to me too, or that happened to me as well. 
and let's uh, uh, talk about how many times this particular incident comes up. And so it's not just a one-off or just having a go or what have you. It's an ingrained um, accepted practice. The other thought I had was instead of using, you know, nebulous terms like racially insensitive or racially motivated, describe what happened. Um, I'm thinking back to the the time, because I'm not up on my news this week, unfortunately, the time when Adam Goods, I think it was, was called a monkey by a little girl in, in the audience of an AFL game. Describe what happened. A seven-year-old little girl called a professional AFL season player a monkey several times. She singled him out on the field. No one around the little girl corrected her or chastised her or in- encouraged her to stop. Uh, no one showed any empathy toward Adam Goods. No one actually, um, you know, reached out to him either verbally or non-verbally or, or made any uh, uh any action to to quell the situation describe the event rather than calling it rather than having a, a title on it which doesn't really accurately uh capture what what happened and then it becomes harder to dismiss or harder to say ah it's just one incident or having a go no this is what happened this is a problem this is something that 20 30 40 people uh, witnessed and did nothing about I think that's a really good point, Tyree, and I think we can look to examples where that's been successful in other forms of advocacy. So I know that in the gender-based violence space, reporting has shifted dramatically over the past few years by having more reporters engaged and trained in reporting on uh, gender-related issues and sexism and misogyny, developing literacy in that space, having commentators actually fixing headlines and um, like Jane Gilmore does the fixed headlines where she actually points out where a headline has been really passive about who the um, aggressor actually was and has basically erased the victim. And perhaps a shift in that um, framing will actually help identify these incidents, help make that public conversation when it does happen, which is sometimes quite, you know, it's not even guaranteed, but when it does happen to make it actually a productive conversation and one that people can learn from. And like you said, empathize with the victim rather than look for excuses um, for the um, person, for the offender, for the person who's um, being racist. So there are examples of things that would help sort of shift that framing in the public discourse. And I don't think it's for lack of trying. I think people have attempted to do this. And I think uh, racism in Australia is so deeply entrenched that it hasn't quite reached that level where we're having enough of a uh, rigorous or fast um, change in, in the media cycle and in the way that racism is reported on. And similarly, we don't have as much uh, of a of a conversation happening around, well, how do we fund organisations like Aboriginal women's organisations who are doing some of this fantastic work to do work that's anti-racist as well? Why do we prioritise certain um, uh, struggles or certain um, social justice issues to the, you know, to the expense of others? And why aren't we adopting a more intersectional approach when it comes to these issues? Because, um, for example, women don't experience violence in isolation. They experience it at the same time as they experience racism, at the same time as they experience um, a wide range of issues. So I think if we were able to direct more energy into that type of work and into maintaining um, 
keeping racism on the public agenda, then we'll see a faster and more dramatic shift. But we need to sort of have that space created in the first place for people to share those stories, for victims to be empathised with and for the actual conversation to occur in a way that's productive rather than um, a conversation where it's like, oh, no, this thing happened but it's got nothing to do with us and we can't help it and it's one isolated incident and that's that way of thinking or seeing things as isolated incidents is a massive barrier to actual structural change. I want to, if we can, move from the public to the personal because, of course, it's easy to shout at a television and throw down, a, if you have a newspaper, throw down a newspaper when you disagree with a headline. Don't throw down your phone. That's where I read my news. <laughs> but it, it's easy to dismiss these public disavowals. But, of course, the conversations need to be had. In her contribution to the anthology Proximity to Blackness, Max Edwards discusses dealing with racism and the pervasive notion that knowing a person of colour can give you a free pass. She notes the problem um, because racism inevitably infects those people we love and hold dear. It's the system they are raised in and taught to uphold from birth. It's a system that privileges them, and so, like those before them, they invest and uphold that system. Now, that that is something that, for me, is just absolutely close to home because I am I'm a white male, I have grown up in Australia in an education system that that recognises me, that sees me. I don't have to look far to see myself and to actually turn the lens on myself and realise that those institutions have meant that more than likely, even if I don't recognise it myself, I have been a part of racist systems, that I've actively participated in them and that I have to actively take part in doing something about it, if if what I'm saying here, the reason I'm having this conversation is is going to achieve anything. I know these conversations are also incredibly difficult to have. Um, that it's, you know, even even in a safe space with friends, people will get defensive, but they they need to be had. They need to to chip away at that. I wondered how you all and this is again Again, not your responsibility, Tyree, you've pointed out. Google exists so that people don't have to put others on the spot and make them uncomfortable. So turn this back on me if you would like. But how, how do you each deal with racism, writ large or small, with the people in your lives? For me, it's not just about um, speaking about the pervasiveness of white supremacy, but it's also looking at how white supremacy affects people in my own community and how it's been internalised in my own community. We have racists among Arab Australians. We have uh, colorism. We have uh, racism in our home countries in Lebanon. Um, domestic workers are still hired and basically kept in slavery-like conditions in people's houses to do the work that women don't feel like doing for themselves. And that's a huge problem. And they um, are often assaulted and kept in abysmal conditions or kept without pay or kept without um, freedom of movement and have their passports take them off, taken off them. So I think in each of our own contexts, there are lots of ways that we can challenge racism so that it's so that we're actually looking at things that are not only over there, but close to home as well. So for me, it's about challenging the people around me to um, not see racism as something external to themselves, but something that you are also capable of. And I'm from a racialized group, but we can also be um, guilty of racism and a part of perpetuating um, ra uh, racial stereotypes and racist hierarchies within our own community. And I think that's really, really important for me. 
I think speaking personally, um, just quickly, because I think Shirley wanted to say something as well. I grew up in the U.S. and I was we were comfortable. I didn't have to struggle um, as other people that look like me have to struggle. Some other people. I went to school with people that were um, didn't have uh, as privileged of a life that I had. And so I also had certain preconceptions about people that look like me. Um, I had certain thoughts and certain conclusions I would draw. And it took years for me to unlearn all of that because it had been reinforced by news. It had been reinforced by, you know, my parents who, who, were, who were also changing along with me. Um, you know, no, I, no one's perfect, uh, but it, it, it's, it's an unlearning. And I think to a point that Amani and Shirley made earlier, when you're, and yourself as well, Andrew, when you're learning in a system uh, where white superiority is the norm, uh, unlearning within that system, from that system, is a lengthy process. And so you have to exercise patience. You have to exercise continued kind of unpacking and continued, um, for myself at least, self-prosecution as to, okay, why do I feel that way? Why did I, why did I think that? What did that originate from? Um, and, and begin to think more of an in, as an individual versus regurgitating what you either see on the news or what the images show or what you've been taught. We see it, of course, in Australia all the time with um, the, nebula, the, the fictitious African gang issue that Melbourne had, you know, um, all the way up, to, of course, to um, Arab Australians being tagged as, as terrorists or as uh, subversive elements when... Australia exported a white male that went and massacred, you know, a community in Christchurch. It's, it's a continual process of, of unlearning that everyone, you know, has, has some unlearning to, that they still must do if you're educated in a westernized society or any society where there's a dominant culture doing the teaching. I definitely, you know, take on both of um, the points raised by Amani and Tyree in terms of unlearning and um, better understanding, um, you know, the intersections in my own identity and how I could also be capable of enacting um, very prejudiced and racist behaviours. Um, I would like to say that um, beyond the unlearning and things like that, I think um, as an Asian Australian, uh, there have been a lot of painful conversations that I've witnessed, especially um coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement, where I think there were a lot of um, important conversations that were being had about um, the relationship and the tensions that can exist between marginalised communities as well. And when I have kind of unpacked these things within myself and taken the time to better understand how the white gaze views Asians as, I guess, a model minority, it becomes more important for me personally as an Asian Australian to work harder to build solidarity with people from um, fellow marginalised communities. And I think that solidarity is going to be one of the key foundations that we will stand on to be able to dismantle racism. And so that's what I'd like to add to those two points. I want to jump in because, and I am I am loath to put myself at the center of any conversation or interview that I I do on this show, but 
I I am fully cognizant that I've asked you a question that has as much to do with with me as a white man as it does for anyone else because more often than not if we if, if I want to see myself as as doing anything productive I have to recognize that I have access to have these conversations in ways that many people don't with friends I might be in a situation where covertly people are doing and saying racist things that I can address so I I thought it's worth speaking to people who are white and are wondering how they can do that or afraid that they can't do that or don't understand what unlearning is or relearning. And I would say, first of all, listen to people that, that tell you you can just Google. There is so much incredible information out there, Tyree. I mean, you, you made that point. There are authors. There are people telling these stories. There is a book. I'm just going to – nobody else can see this, but I'm just going to say racism, stories of fear, hate, and bigotry are incredible stories that can be the beginning of someone's journey to unlearning. But it also involves listening, and that is the hardest thing to do seemingly because often it brings up feelings where you just want to defend yourself. You want to say, I'm not. But you need to listen long enough to start to sit with that feeling, Tyree, that you mentioned before. And know that it's a process and know that even when it feels uncomfortable, that it's worth doing. Be comfortable with discomfort. Be comfortable with discomfort. And I, 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 Again, I lo- I'm loath to put myself at the centre of this, but it is the responsibility of the people who are in those institutions who have been brought up with them and recognise that they are a part of that dominant culture to do that. Um, so I wanted to just add that. Exactly. And that's why organisations like Sweatshop are so important, because it starts with literacy. Uh, if you can read someone else's story and imagine yourself going through or experiencing alongside them what they've experienced and, and what they go through every day, you can then begin to look at your own life and think, wow, I don't actually have to think about that or deal with that. Or I've gone however many years you've been alive without ever once having that sort of incident or, or challenge brought against me. And then you can begin to unpack some of the incidents in your, in your life where you've seen that happen, where you've seen um, the theater of whiteness being played out right in front of you and you, haven't said anything or didn't notice anything. Sometimes you, you, you don't know that you're witnessing racism. It's happened to me too. Sometimes you, you, you think a few seconds ago, like that was kind of messed up. Like not sure how I'm supposed to feel about that, you know? Um, but it, it starts with at least understanding there are viewpoints, there are experiences and there are insights that are foreign to yours, at least to yourself um, and, and foreign to your experience, but you can still access and tap into and learn from. And then when you're comfortable, you can then begin to have these conversations with maybe people that don't look look like you and say, look, have I ever said anything or mentioned anything or ignored something that has hurt or or affected you in some way? If so, can you give me some pointers or, or what can I do or can you point it out to me next time? You know, you can you can ask for help. Just realize that. People uh, of color, minorities will help you when they have the energy to and when, when they have the resources to. Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes it's been a long day. It's been a long week. It's yet another hashtag, yet another tragedy, tr- tragedy and we don't have the energy. But when we do, you know, you can have those conversations 
with people you trust who's ha- who have viewpoints that are different to yours or experiences that are different to yours? Doing the research is really important. And I think um, right now we're in a moment where there is a shift in the conversation around um, racism and there, there are movements that are really um, gaining a lot of publicity and speed. Um, I think that's in, in part thanks to social media, but also in part um, thanks to a more widening of understanding in the dominant culture as well. And I think, um, you know, I'd say don't let this just be a moment um, and let it be a uh, something that puts us on a different course um, to creating real change. I would add that there has never been a better time to be brave. Um, there have been so many movements uh, that have been, uh, that we've seen over the last year that have been about equal rights, equal pay, equal treatment, some of which have been flawed as well, some of which have left out um, certain voices as well. And we're under lockdown right now. We're all stuck at home. We have not much else to do, but we still have internet and we have books and we have television and we have media. We have all these things we can consume, better things we can consume, better things we can feed and educate ourselves with to help unravel all of this miseducation we've been under. And so what better way to come out of the lockdown, out of this pandemic, whenever it ends, with a completely different viewpoint and a completely a completely fresh start in terms of how you engage with other people when we're able to all freely go and access the outside world. There's never been a better time. Um, so just start. Start at sweatshop.ws. Uh, buy some books. Buy Monty Hadar's beautiful book. Buy Shirley's book. Um, when it is- Buy Tyree's book. By time, by my book when it comes out in, in the in the future because I have I actually have to write it, um and and start to start to unlearn start that process. Yeah, definitely. I echo both of those things, and I think the only additional point I would make is given that we're in a lockdown, and given we're talking about the arts and literature, um, I would encourage everyone to get on Instagram and support um people of color who are creating and making. Um, beautiful things despite really ugly circumstances at the moment and um, that's a way that you can genuinely engage with and support someone's work in in a way that doesn't really cost you much at all. You are listening to an incredible anthology conversation. I want to thank, reintroduce and thank Amani Haider, Shirley Lay, Tyree Barnett. They are all contributing authors to Sweatshop's latest anthology, Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate and bigotry, you can get a copy from sweatshop.ws. And I would really encourage you to do so. It is just such a read. And thank you each, Shirley, Amani, Tyree, for, for taking part in this beautiful, open, incredible conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew, and everyone else. That's it for this great conversation with Amani Hader, Shirley Lay, and Tyree Barnett. Racism, Stories on Fear, Hate, and Bigotry is out now from Sweatshop. You can order a copy online at sweatshop.ws. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I, I just want to add a personal note here. Thank you so much for joining me for these incredible conversations. If you are in Sydney at the moment, then you are locked down, and we're going to be locked down for the next little while. And reading books is such an incredible way to engage with our city, with our world. And while we're in our houses, it may be easy to forget 
the the things like what we've discussed in our in our current conversation from the collection racism stories on fear hate and bigotry they might not be immediately active in our minds in our lives so that doesn't mean they're not happening the books that we read the websites that we visit the podcasts that we listen to are all an important part of how we define the society that we live in I feel like by joining us in this conversation, you, you know, you're taking a step to figure out a little bit about what that world looks like. So I thank you for that. If you want us to discover more, check out sweatshop.ws, check out some of the authors that we've mentioned, check out the works of Amani, Shirley and Tyree, and just keep reading. Education is so key. Final Draft Great Conversations is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. I would love if you wanted to stay in touch. If anything that you've heard today has resonated with you, you'll find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. Send me a message. Let me know what you're reading. Give us a rating. If you think this important, this discussion was important, put it in front of other eyes by rating our show. I'm Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more incredible conversations from Final Draft. I love doing this every week. Thanks for joining me on the ride and happy reading.